How can we understand something as complicated as a war, an economic crisis? Who do we ask? Politics is too important to leave to experts. We're all affected by it, and we can't ignore it. You know more than you think, and you can learn what you don't know. I'm Justin Podor, and this is The Ossington Circle, a podcast to help you understand the world, and maybe even change it. Welcome to the Ossington Circle. I'm here with Vijay Prashad. Vijay, I'm very excited to have Vijay on. He's the author of Darker Nations, Poorer Nations, Arab Spring, Libyan Winter, and what I'm going to talk to him about today, Death of a Nation, uh, which talks about the Arab Spring and the future of the Arab Revolution. Uh, He's also the author of recent edited collections on Palestine and on the United Nations. Uh, And so, you know, and I've known Vijay for, I've known you for like, 17 or maybe 19 or 20 years now so it's it's really cool to to be able to talk and hopefully we can talk about the past 20 years as well as the past three or four so thank you for joining me pleasure please it's an honor to be with you so Vijay I want let's start with the most immediate issue you know your book talks about many parts of the of the Arab world you know you you go you talk about Turkey about Palestine Yemen but there's a lot about Syria and I do want to talk about Syria. It's you know one of the most urgent issues of the, the of our time right now that we're living through. And you're one of the people that follows things so closely and in such detail as well as with the big picture in mind. So I want to start with just this immediate picture about these de-escalation zones and the negotiations that are going on at Astana uh, in Kazakhstan to try to end the war and you again like I follow your interviews and your talks and your articles in uh, Alternet and in the Hindu frontline and elsewhere but um, just you know there's always like a moment in between your columns coming out when I can ask you <laughs> like what you're working on now but can we talk a bit about the these de-escalation zones and what what that means uh, yeah sure you know for, firstly this war uh, Justin has been going on for uh, much too long, um, half the Syrian population, more than half the Syrian population has been displaced. The death toll is certainly above half a million, uh, most likely uh, much higher than that. It's it's very hard to say because the United Nations about three years ago stopped counting the war dead. Uh, it was quite a stunning uh, you know, decision by the United Nations. There's some debate about um, you know uh, how many people on each side uh, have been killed, and I think you know while I understand the importance of that debate, the point I'm trying to make is that the human casualties and the human toll in Syria has been astounding. Uh, you know, very few countries, perhaps Libya is the one that comes closest, uh, has been uh, destroyed so quickly. You know, with such uh, rapidity, such speed. Afghanistan. Its destruction has taken decades, um, you know, and there when destruction takes decades, people uh, are able to adjust, in a sense, to the pace of the destruction and to create uh, alternative ways to exist. In Libya and in Syria, the destruction has been so swift that the population is utterly disoriented. Yeah. So, I mean, we see that. Like, I'm in, I'm in Toronto. We have Syrian refugee families you know, we sometimes are in touch with, and it's just that, that, what the hell just hit me is, is still, 
that feel, that's the main feeling that you get from people. You know? It's so. quite right. I mean, and you know, this is of course experienced uh, among refugees, but also uh, Syrians inside the country. You know, uh, there are very many more internally displaced Syrians than Syrians who've left the country. And but the disorientation is also amongst those who haven't uh, been displaced, who are still in their homes. You know, they've seen their entire civilization collapse uh, in the space of of you know three, four, five, six, and now uh, you know entering the seventh year. So what this uh, has done is it's produced inside Syria. Uh, I would say over the the course of the last at least couple of years, a very large constituency for some kind of uh, peace uh, at some scale. You know, uh, people are not, I would say, uh, optimistic in uh, assuming that the war in its entirety is going to end. But there's been a great deal of talk uh, from the ground up for different scaled levels of uh, peace agreements, meaning peace agreements in neighborhoods, peace agreements in towns, in rural areas, um, in cities perhaps, you know, having uh, different kinds of peace uh, be brokered, uh, whether it's by, you know, uh, communities doing the brokering themselves. Uh, sometimes it's by former, uh, you know, military people who have some respect in the area that have come in and brokered the peace. So the point is that there has been a long conversation within Syria uh, for some level of a peace agreement, and many of these have held. Uh, they have also included uh, some of the regional actors. So, for instance, Iran and Qatar have been quite involved uh, in the so you know the moving of of populations that are feeling threatened uh, from one area to another. Uh, they've been involved in helping broker peace uh, agreements and so on. So, so these agreements. Right, so Iran and Qatar are able to also come to agreements with each other here. Yes, because I mean, what what I really want to suggest is that there is a constituency in the country and there's been pressure from below. So even the proxies of, say, the Qataris uh, are facing pressure from the community saying, look, we want the fighting to end. Or even proxies uh, of the Iranians are facing this pressure. So it's popular pressure for some kind of, uh, you know, uh, cessation of hostilities that's coming from below that has moved... Uh, you know, whether it's, as I said, neighborhood level peace agreements or city level peace agreements. So one has seen this over the course of the past two years uh, across the country. You know, it's a it's a very uh, false uh, belief uh, that uh, this is only happening after, you know, one side or the other has won. Actually, in, in situations of stalemate or siege, there have been uh, a great, uh, you know, kind of uh, push by ordinary people asking for peace. So this is important, I think, to put on the table that uh, the, these peace discussions that are taking place, they are not necessarily coming from uh, the warring parties who see an advantage now to secure their, their gains. But this is coming from below. I think the population has now is suggested in, in very many parts of Syria they are fed up with this war. Um, so, so this is important. Now, of course it's the case that uh, backed by the Russians after September 2015, uh, uh, previously, of course, there were Iranian troops in the country. Uh, there, there have been, uh, there's been Hezbollah. Uh, you know, these groups backing the Syrian government have made very important gains for that government uh, up the road from Damascus uh, to Aleppo 
and uh, you know uh, even uh, to clear out the countryside in parts of Idlib. So that western section of Syria has seen the government, uh, you know, establish itself in some ways uh, in a position of dominance. So now, just, uh, yeah. just to get, make some geographic notes here in terms of the, the situation on the ground, the, the rebels or the opposition are strong in Idlib, which is still in that, in, which you, we'd still consider to be in that uh, highly populated western part of Syria. And also ISIS is, is still strong in Raqqa and in Deir Ezzor, which is closer to, which is kind of closer to the eastern part of the country. Is that a fair picture? Yes, but the rebels are also strong in pockets around Damascus. The rebels are also strong along the areas of the Israeli-occupied Golan Heights. Uh, you know, so, so there are pockets of rebel activity uh, up and down the western part of Syria. But by and large, the government has made quite considerable gains over the course of the past two years. And so some suggested that when the Syrian government uh, began to push for uh, much more, you know, firmly push for some kind of dialogue with the uh, armed opposition's political leadership, which is based in Istanbul in Turkey, when this push came from Damascus, from the Syrian government, uh, many people assumed this was uh, because they wanted to consolidate their gains. In other words, they want to come to the table when they have the upper hand on the ground. But I want to suggest that while this is partly true, you know, it's obviously true, uh, uh, they are also being pushed to the table by this constituency for peace from below. I think this constituency for peace from below should not be neglected. Uh, it has played a very important role uh, in, in, in basically suggesting to all the powers uh, that the tolerance for this war is beginning to wear extraordinarily thin. Now, what's interesting is, uh, whereas the United Nations peace uh, uh, talks were taking place in Geneva, and whereas, of course, those peace talks uh, had a major presence from the United States government, the Russians uh, hastily... Uh, brought the Turkish government into a discussion, uh, you know, which is very interesting because Turkey from 2011 till about 2016 was very much in the camp of the West, uh, eager to have regime change in Syria, eager to have its basic proxies, in other words, the the Syrian Muslim Brotherhood come to power in Damascus. But uh, because of the internal convulsions in Turkey, Largely, I think they miscalculated what was going to happen amongst the Syrian Kurds when they called for regime change in Damascus. Uh, Turkey began to basically lean towards the Russians to end the war before Syrian Kurds uh, strengthened their position on the border of Turkey. So when the Russians suggested to the Turks that they start an alternative process, uh, the Turks were quite interested in this. And of course then... It was uh, ideal that the location for that uh, peace dialogue be in Astana in Kazakhstan. And, you know, why this is important is there is a kind of emotional and, um, you know, uh, the kind of emotional connection between the Turkmen in in Kazakhstan and the Turks uh, in Turkey. You know, uh, there is a kind of old historical linkage between those two countries, those two regions. So uh, Kazakhstan in that sense was quite a perfect 
a place with uh, Russia uh, standing in for the Syrian government and with Turkey standing in for the armed rebels apart from the Al-Qaeda proxy which is Jabhat al-Nusra and now of course keeps renaming itself and the uh, ISIS group. So apart from the Al-Qaeda proxy and ISIS, Turkey was to stand in for the rest of the rebels, was to be essentially uh, the surety for the rebels. And so that, that, includes the, that includes the Saudi-sponsored group, I guess? Yes, that absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. In other words, the Saudi proxy, Jaish al-Islam, uh, was deeply weakened by 2016 for, for maybe, maybe three quick reasons. One, the Saudis had basically uh, established themselves in the war in Yemen and had overextended into Yemen and found that uh, a lot of their resources were getting sucked into that war. Secondly, the Saudi economy, as a consequence of the drop in oil prices, was suffering quite uh, deeply. And thirdly, the entry of the uh, Russian troops uh, directly into uh, Syria in September 2015 put a real damper in the ability of the Saudi proxy, which was operating around Damascus, from making any gains. So in that sense, the Saudis pressured Jais al-Islam to join this uh, peace discussion. In fact, the, the rebel delegation that came to, um, to Astana, to Kazakhstan, was led not by a Turkish proxy group, but by the leader of uh, Jais al-Islam. Uh, the Saudi proxy. Uh, they led the uh, Syrian rebel armed uh, fighters uh, delegation to Astana. So in the first two meetings in Astana, um, they, they basically put the question of regional and local ceasefires on the table. You know, again, uh, this is pressure from below because everybody uh, is feeling this pressure, all the fighting groups. I mean, I've communicated with many of uh, these groups and I find all of them uh, are of the view that there's a great deal of pressure from below saying that they want some sort of cessation. So at the Astana 1 and Astana 2, uh, the question of the cessation of hostilities was very much uh, on the surface. And this process then uh, was uh, helping, you know, as I said, people like the Qataris and the, um, and the Iranians from facilitating their own little small agreements. And it also opened up space for local Syrian civic groups to re-emerge as brokers of the peace. You know, this is very important. You can't, uh, you know, wind down this war unless uh, local civic groups in Syria re-emerge uh, to establish themselves in very broken neighborhoods, to create platforms of unity, to bring people together. You know, wars don't end uh, when the pistol is handed by the losing side to the winning side. That's not how it ends. It ends when uh, people who have begun to lose faith in each other regain that trust. And that's why the emergence of these civic groups was very important. Then sadly, Justin, by Astana 3 and 4, the temperature for the, um, the agreement uh, began to fray. And this is very interesting. So um, the Trump uh, victory in the election initially suggested that Mr. Trump was going to uh, also help wind down the war in Syria, partly because uh, he thought that the main uh, show should be the war against ISIS and that the war against the Assad regime should be uh, secondary or perhaps not even on the table any longer. So when that uh, was, on the, was, was suggested, when Trump won the election, the armed opposition 
uh, leadership in Istanbul, that is the Syrian armed opposition's leadership, uh, you know, was quite upset. And they openly said that they wanted the Americans back in the negotiation because they felt that the uh, strength of the Syrian government on the ground was being too, uh, you know, magnified at the negotiating table. And there's some truth to that. I mean, the Syrian government was dictating the terms when I would suggest that it should have perhaps been a little more generous to some of these groups uh, and tried to, again, as I say, you know, uh, bring the groups in in order to refract this on the ground where local uh, civic groups can emerge and create trust among the population. But anyway, at that point, the armed opposition began to say, we want the Americans back on the table. And before Astana's fourth meeting, the United States uh, bombed the air base, Syrian air base uh, in reaction to what appeared to be a chemical attack near Idlib. Now, when the Americans fired into uh, a Syrian army air base, uh, taking out some planes and so on, the point wasn't the military uh, consequence of that action. It was the political consequence. Because what that did was it suggested once more to the armed opposition's um, you know, leadership that the Americans might be back in the regime change saddle. And if that is the case, then why bother with uh, making peace agreements? So, unfortunately, the armed opposition then, uh, its stomach for the peace agreements, uh, you know, began to, uh, uh, to deteriorate. It's, it's kind of, uh, its desire for these agreements. And it's yeah. at that point that the Russians, the Syrians, uh, the Iranians, uh, and, and, other, and the Turks as well, basically announced the uh, demarcation of uh, these, you know, uh, these zones. Um, and so, you know, really without uh, having everybody at the table, this was a kind of imposition on the landscape of Syria. So I'm a little pessimistic that these zones will work uh, because after all, you can't from above, uh, you know, uh, uh, sort of dictate peace. Peace has to come from below. Right. So there's a couple of ideas that I that I had while you were talking. And one of them is the idea that we have the west and the, the west is the only kind of part of the world that that can rule that can lead a peace process and in fact it was it was deadlock at geneva for a long time and it on, things only started to move towards peace once things moved into the region into kazakhstan so that was interesting and the other idea of the local the idea that the local ceasefires were moving at least the, the process forward based on pressure from below that, that's really interesting I wanted to ask you though if if it, if there's pressure from below that's building now would you would would, is, would your assessment be that there was some tolerance for giving the opposition a chance to try to overthrow uh, Assad at the at the popular level that's now kind of been lost by the length and the and the destructive nature of the war well, look, uh, this brings us into very thorny territory because yeah. this takes us back to um, not 2011, but actually the previous decade um, from the uh, change of power from Hafiz al-Assad to his son Bashar al-Assad and what yeah. that meant and then the Damascus Spring of 2006 and so on. So let's, let's go in there because I think it's important. Yeah. Um, you know... Uh, there is today too much certainty 
about uh, events in places like Syria or Libya. Uh, I quite remember in 2011, uh, in between February, March and April, when I would interview people at the United Nations uh, in the Secretariat and the various ambassadors who were there at the Security Council during the deliberations over Libya for two resolutions. One was Resolution 1970 and then 1973. Uh, this was a very important moment in the history of the United Nations because it was really the first resolution under Chapter 7 of the UN Charter which allows armed force um, based on the theory of responsibility to, to protect, so-called R2P. And at that time, uh, I asked people at the UN Secretariat, you know, how do you know what's going on in Libya? Like, how do you know that there's a near genocide taking place? How do you know that the civilian casualty rates are high? Uh, what are you relying upon? Do you have good intelligence? And I was struck when one of the Secretariat people, and this was, of course, repeated by Secretary General Ban Ki-moon, uh, suggested that they were relying on press reports. And when I pressed this Secretariat member, which press are you reading, they mentioned Al Arabiya. Now, you know, this is interesting to me because Al Arabiya is the official uh, press agency of the Saudi Arabian government. Wow. And everything that Al Arabiya was saying in March and April of uh, 2011 was later contradicted, not by me, not by uh, you know, uh, a journalist, but it was contradicted by Human Rights uh, Watch report. In other words, when Human Rights Watch went to study the, um, you know, the attacks on the towns by the Gaddafi government, they didn't find near the number of casualties that Al Arabiya was claiming. Like, you know, Al Arabiya was saying 10,000 dead, 5,000 dead. And then when Human Rights Watch subsequently went to this town, these towns, they found 200 dead. And of the 200, you know, and, and by the way, yeah. 200 dead is a lot of people dead. It's a serious thing. But yeah, it's, it's not genocidal, you know. Yeah. And what they found in the 200 dead was a majority male, very few women and children. Now, of course, there might be women and children combatants, you know, of course. But the tendency is that if more men are killed, then it looks like the combatants are being killed. You know, that this is a formula that people like Human Rights Watch uh, use. Uh, when there's so-called indiscriminate killing, then the percentages of men, women, and children are reflective of what you see in society. If yeah, it's so not just, reflective... Just to, just to pause for a second, this is the more like the pattern that you see in Gaza in 2014 when Israel's just bombing more or less indiscriminately uh, in this in within Gaza. So that would be you wouldn't you wouldn't see a hugely skewed pattern of males to to women and children in that kind of situation. You're quite right. Uh, and so this was why I'm, I'm going to Libya, Justin. It's not because I didn't understand your question. Why no, I'm no. going to Libya is to establish the fact that, you know, the narratives at work are very, very complicated. And the source of information is very difficult to fathom. So now I quite understand uh, why people in 2011 were deeply frustrated and angry with the government of Mr. Assad. You know, after all, uh, there were two problems with that government. The first problem is that, uh, like most of the one-party uh, third-world project states, whether it's the uh, government in Egypt, 
the government in you know uh, very many parts of of the global south really uh, the deal that these governments had made with their populations in the 1960s and 70s was look we don't want to have too much multi-party democracy because this is where the west will insinuate itself and create political chaos so you let us govern in your name but we will make sure you have a good uh, you know house to stay in a job you'll have food you'll have you know decent transportation uh, we, you'll have education for your children we'll make sure all this is taken care of that was the basic bargain of these arab nationalist states now you know egypt went ahead of all of them in the 1970s and broke the bargain and said that we are going to now liberalize the economy we're going to not ensure that you have bread or housing or etc we'll go to the imf and anwar al sadat also of course then makes the deal with israel so we'll also then uh, you know uh, collaborate with the united states etc so then people were wondering well what a, you know we've given up our political rights to you and you've given us nothing you know the you've broke the bargain and so frustration in egypt has been gathering since the late 1970s you know the assassination of anwar sadat uh, was a piece of this the many attempts to assassinate um, you know hosni mubarak uh, and the birth of um, al qaeda one branch of al qaeda inside egypt is a consequence of that in syria uh, hafiz al assad held off from liberalizing the economy you know uh, right through until his death um so you know uh, right till hafiz al assad's uh, you know death uh, he the government of syria continued to maintain this this uh, bargain we will take all political rights we'll give you some ability to have associations uh, but we will give you food shelter education etc now mr assad's son bashar al assad when he came to power uh, he decided to liberalize the economy and uh, this was of course uh, quite catastrophic for uh, the syrian people it benefited the turkish government as it turned out and turkish capital which swept into uh, into syria into real estate into finance into the production of consumer goods and so in syria you saw a deterioration uh, of the old bargain uh, through the 2000s and at this point uh, the second issue comes to play which is that the young mr assad um decided to actually open up the political question and several times promised to have multi-party democracy including as a consequence of the Damascus spring um you know uh, conversation in 2006 but then as that uh, bargain was being frayed as he began to say okay we'll have multi-party system and you know by the way people really liked this they thought well he's young he's going to open up the political system this is good this is good for syria he every time he tried to do it uh, there were sections uh, you know that were not uh, very happy with this he himself might have felt you know i don't know what his mind was but he might have felt that this was going too far so he reined things back in so this uh, did produce discontent in syria there's no question about that um, so of course there was discontent but discontent is different from Uh, the desire for uh, armed intervention from abroad etc 
you know well, and yeah and this is your uh, one of your sentences I think you gave a writing workshop where you emphasized this sentence that you that you used in your uh, what do you call it a bullet sentence or a, it's a detonator sentence detonator sentence that's it yeah. so you said you know it takes it can take 150 years to build a state but it can be destroyed in an afternoon and the uh, this is this is a distinction I, I wanted to talk about because you mentioned a, a writer I think a Pulitzer Prize winner, Anand Gopal, one of our countrymen. I know you're from yeah. South Asia. I'm from South Asia originally. So Anand Gopal, who wrote or who said in Democracy Now! that there's no regime change uh, policy of the U.S. towards Syria, and there never has been. And I thought, you know, I read your article and I thought you were completely right in, in, in the way that you uh, refuted that. But it also occurred to me there is a distinction between regime change and the destruction of a state and in that sense if he's saying i know this is not what he's saying but if he were saying there's no regime change agenda the agenda is actually the destruction of the state then i, I actually could agree with him well yes i mean look the, the thing is that okay I, i'll give you i was recently speaking in berkeley and i spoke about u.s foreign policy and at the end a group of uh, Iranian Americans came to talk to me mm -hmm. and they asked me what do you think of the government in Tehran you know one of them asked me so I, I was interested in this they they were all Iranians of an earlier generation you know uh, who were all leftists of one kind or the other it turned out uh, that was the group yeah. that was there and among them was a young young man of perhaps 20, 21 years of age. He was the son of one of the couples that was there. And in fact, one of the couples that was quite uh, well informed about events in Iran and so on. So just because I, I didn't really know exactly what to say directly to that question, you know, what yeah. do you think of the government in Iran? And Tehran? <laughs> well, oh, I mean, what am I supposed to say? Uh, so I turned to this young man and I said, what do you think of the government in Tehran? And his answer, Justin, was so sophisticated that it's, I would say it's probably the answer that uh, the majority of Syrians would also give. He said, I prefer the government in Tehran to a war. Right. And those are the, the options. choices between the government in Tehran and a war, I'll pick the government in Tehran. Right. And I think that's a very normal and sensible statement. That's not a political philosophy. That's not a... Uh, that should not be raised to some kind of political position or whatever. I think it's a sensible statement of an ordinary person who says, I don't want to live through a war. But you it's know? the recognition, too, of something fairly profound, which is that war is a kind of a method of governance in this world today. Like Afghanistan right now, Iraq right now, Haiti, Palestine, these are all kind of parts of the world that are expected to be at war forever and occupied forever and and not have normal political and democratic sovereign processes because there's a war and so there's this international system for governing places that are at war and moving Syria into that system and moving Iran eventually into that system does seem to be one of the goals of you know the powerful parties in this world you're quite right. I mean, look, firstly, uh, I, I would just say that, you know, you as a, as a political force, you know, you can't control when people rise up uh, and they say we are fed up, you know, we're angry. 
But uh, you can, uh, as a political entity, if, if there is indeed a political entity involved in this, the political entity has to frame the strategy, has to come in there and say, look, fine, we are up, we are angry. We are not strong enough right now to actually demand the overthrow of this government. Uh, but we are strong enough to demand XYZ changes. You know, yeah. Or we are strong enough to use this uh, rising up of the people to strengthen our position. You know, to go more among the people, uh, you know, to cascade our power into other areas where people now have heard of us. So, you know, that kind of strategic thinking is essential uh, in a in a situation when people rise up. You know, yeah, I mean, uh, that's been on display. Sorry again to keep interrupting yeah, you, but no, that's please. been on display in in Colombia, for example, right? You have the FARC, the guerrillas that have been at war for decades, you know, whether you want to start 1948 or 1964, and they decided that there, there would be no victory for them on the battlefield, and that the conditions were such that a negotiated peace agreement was not only possible, but, but you know, the, it was, this was the moment for that. And, and it's very interesting to, to look at the way a revolutionary organization can, you know, and I've had many critiques you know, my own criticisms of the FARC over the years, but to see that a, an organization is capable of doing that, and there's very little kind of support for FARC, uh, even in this peace process, from the pe activists in the West that I see, but, you know, a more maximalist position by, for example, the Syrian rebels that say, well, we're willing to, we're, you know, we're not going to stop until Assad goes, no matter what, it's it's that that to me seems to be a a, a less defensible position uh, in in light of the balance of forces and in light of what you know what what the consequences of that position are. Well, to tell you the truth, you know uh, the 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 Colombian issue is a very important and useful um, uh, you know analogy here because the, in in Colombia it's FARC who are within the country who have decided look you know. We, we can't do this. The balance of forces is not uh, propitious for victory. Therefore, we need to come to the table. Now, what I was saying when we began was that inside Syria, uh, there is this constituency of peace. There is a very large section, including fighters. Uh, that's what I'm, I want to put uh, very firmly, who are saying, let's uh, wind this down. That the balance of forces is not allowing us to have a victory. And the theory that the Americans, uh, as in Libya, are going to fly in and take yeah. out the Assad government and deliver Damascus to us is not uh, on, you know, is not being, is not coming to fruition. Uh, yeah. And even Trump's attack on the airbase is not sufficient indication that they're going to go ahead with a full-scale, uh, you know, uh, shock and awe attack on Damascus and destroy the Syrian state and, and deliver Syria to us. So, uh, you know. I think people inside the country have this uh, sensibility where the peace is perhaps the option, uh, except when uh, they are egged on by these kind of attacks like the one on the airbase. Yeah. It's actually the Syrian opposition abroad um, that has, uh, and its, its allies, that has a much more religious position uh, right. about Assad must go. Uh, and here, I think uh, this is an important uh, issue, I think, to, to consider, because I, I'm, I'm not sure 
uh, if uh, you know they are being sufficiently humane uh, in their understanding of what this war has meant to people inside Syria, uh, let alone, of course, uh, for the refugees. So, you know, the, the, uh, we we've already talked about the speed, the velocity of the collapse of the country, the the speed by which uh, things have become so horrible for ordinary people, um, and the disorientation this has produced. You know, it's one thing to uh, sit at a computer somewhere and egg on um, a rebellion, you know, yeah. uh, and it's another to uh, start with the disoriented uh, mass of people um, who uh, are a constituency for peace and are no longer willing uh, to prolong this uh, for a religious theory that has not come to fruition. So I, yeah. I would like to put that on the table, this idea that you know, uh, we, you have to begin an assessment of what's happening uh, in a war with that with such speed as destroying a country uh, with the people who are disoriented and not with the people who are essentially too stubborn to see uh, that the balance of forces is not working uh, towards an easy resolution. And And information is so important too because you look at, you know, we've addressed this question of sources before. You mentioned the Human Rights Watch uh, report on Libya that contradicted what was what was being reported by the Saudi uh, outlets, media outlets. But the, the United Nations has stopped counting war deaths. And I think to be able to assess information from the UN or from Human Rights Watch or from Amnesty International... Now it's become really important to look very carefully at their methods, at what kind of interviews they got, how they actually did their sampling. All of these things have become really important because the organ there's a real range of quality in in what's reported now that to the point where you can't just say, okay, this is a report from the UN or this is a report from Human Rights Watch and therefore we can believe everything that's in it and it's even more it's even worse the cases the situation is even worse when it comes to media reports because it's really hard to tell who is behind a media report or what's really going on there well look uh, you know there are two different things and I think you're right to put them together because they are both uh, leaned on as the major sources one is the UN material and the other is media. So let's take them sequentially. Um, firstly, uh, the UN material is produced uh, largely by uh, people who are on the ground in the government areas. Uh, they have a very slim presence elsewhere in the country. Uh, and their reports uh, are basically, uh, you know, uh, the kind of level of human degradation. Uh, that's what uh, one finds in most of their reports. They show you uh, how many people have been displaced, the situation of deterioration of human indices, etc. The second kind of human uh, UN report is, of course, the reports by the special, um, you know, uh, you know, uh, uh, investigative bodies set up, uh, and these have been around the chemical attacks. Now, those reports have been produced by. Uh, you know, uh, special groups with very narrow mandates. Um, so, for instance, uh, Sigrid Kag uh, headed the uh, chemical weapons investigation uh, from 2013, 
that had a very narrow mandate uh, to look at th those weapons. Now, you know, people, I don't know anything about chemical weapons or... No, me neither. We can make yeah, a full disclaimer here. Neither no. of us know anything about this. Yeah. yeah. But I do know that their mandates are narrow and their reports are actually fairly uh, soberly written. In other words, they don't come out with conclusive uh, answers. And the reason is that I'm told it's very difficult to know for certain uh, anything in that field. I mean, but of course, in a way, let me just put this, too much is made of uh, these chemical weapons investigations. You know, this war is a brutal war. Yeah, conventional weapons are also not nice weapons. I mean, Correct. you can there's kill... Been, you can, yeah. uh, there's been very few studies done uh, by the UN of conventional weapon use because, you know, we've made conventional weapons legal um, right. to our great, uh, you know, our great shame as human beings. Uh, we've allowed conventional weapons to be seen as a legitimate form uh, of, uh, you know, extending uh, human anger uh, into uh, murder, essentially. Yeah, I just I just wanted to stop there just to acknowledge that essay that you wrote about this, where you were talking about the difference between Western violence and third world violence in Jadalia, I think it was. Uh, so I think that's that's one of these. You were talking about the different dichotomies that apply to different kinds of violence. And I don't know whether you mentioned conventional versus chemical, but that seems to me to be another one. Like, if you're bombing from a drone or you're bombing from the air, that's somehow okay. And, you know, the if you're, if you're, if you're a militia or something using light arms to kill people in a house or something, that's not okay. And neither of them should be okay. Yeah, you know, I'm glad you mentioned that. That essay was called... Uh, something like v their violence and our violence, no yeah. violence theirs and ours. Right. It's actually an homage to an essay by Iqbal Ahmed called Terrorism, Terrorism theirs and, theirs and ours. ours. Of course. Um, you know, later this year, Olive Branch Press is going to release the memoir of Zora Drief, and mm. uh, most people may not know Zora Drief uh, in the Atlantic world. But uh, Zora Drief was an important uh, Algerian freedom fighter, uh, mm. and she took part directly uh, in the Battle of Algiers. Uh, in fact, she participated in, in the very important um, attack on the milk bar in Algiers, which was bombed. And that uh, milk bar bombing plays a role in Gilo Pontecorvo's Battle of Algiers, uh, the famous movie. Anyway, her memoir is coming out later this year. Now, after the milk bar bombing, um, the French said, you know, look at these Algerians, they are terrorists. And mm -hmm. at the time, uh, you, know, um, the, you know, the FLN, uh, the National Front of Liberation from the Algerians, the, one of their leaders, Larbi Ben Mehdi, uh, very smartly said, look, why don't you give us a plane? If you yeah, give us yeah. a plane, then we can fly and bomb you. Then we won't have to use this. Because you are using aerial bombardment to essentially decimate Algerian villages where the FLN is strong. I thought that was an interesting rebuke uh, you know, from the FLN at that time. So this idea of, you know, uh, oh, the Palestinians, they're terrorists because they, uh, you know, they, they'd come with a knife at a checkpoint, but when an Israeli soldier shoots that, uh, you know, somebody at a checkpoint, they are merely security. This double standard uh, goes all the way down into warfare. So, you know, the United States, when it uh, deploys 
the mother of all bombs, that's a legitimate weapon. When the Syrian government drops a barrel bomb, that's illegitimate. I mean, to my mind, these are both barbaric things because I think of weaponry as barbaric. Uh, but the double standard is uh, ludicrous. So the United Nations, that set of materials is actually quite discreet. And I think a lot of the UN uh, statements have been magnified and inflated uh, by people who don't quite know how to read UN documents. Yeah, I mean, yeah. you know, it has its own, it's its own genre. Yeah, it is its own genre. They are very soberly written. They often don't make conclusions. It's hard to take those documents and make you know put heavy conclusions on them. Now the media is very interesting. You know, the bulk of the Western media reporting on Syria uh, is based outside the country, and if they enter the country, they enter government-held areas. Or they go to uh, places like Aleppo after the government has uh, secured it, you know, uh, just right when the securing happened. Very rarely. But there were a couple of journalists that did enter Idlib, like rebel-controlled Idlib, after the chemical attack, right? I mean, I have that. Right. So I'm getting to that. Very rarely do they enter the rebel areas. Um, they, They enter the rebel areas in two different forms. One is when, say, mostly freelancers uh, go into rebel areas at great personal risk. And, you know, I knew uh, Jim Foley, uh, who was the first person beheaded publicly by ISIS. A very nice young man, used to write creative nonfiction, used to write, uh, you know, fiction as well. Uh, You know, studied at UMass, University of Massachusetts at Amherst. Um, Very brave young man. Uh, he was picked up at the Azaz crossing and sold to ISIS and he was beheaded. So at great personal cost, people like Foley, Sotloff, etc. went into rebel areas. Why? Because the rebel areas were dangerous. Yeah, I mean, and I do want to say my friend, um, my friend Ali Mustafa from Toronto also died in a in Aleppo from, a, from actually a barrel bomb. So Yeah, no, the rebel areas were deeply dangerous. I mean, for uh, all kinds of reasons. One is uh, the rebels were getting them, and secondly, you're right, they were susceptible to aerial bombardment from the government. So then there's the second way in which uh, people have entered rebel areas, and that is when the rebels have basically wanted them to come in. So you're thinking of when Karim Shaheen of the Guardian uh, went to uh, the town outside Idlib where the, uh, the attack had taken place. Now, it's this, these are interesting, you know. Uh, I mean, look... Uh, you know, if I'm fighting in a war, I would also want to control the story. And so wars are dangerous to report. Everybody is trying to control the story. In other words, uh, this is a little bit like covering corporations. You know, the spin is much uh, too fast uh, for you to see. Um, You know, you have to be a very experienced reporter to understand when you're being played. And so um, there have been these kind of visits that have been organized. And, you know, Good reporting can come out of these visits. I have no problem with a vis- you know organized trip into very dangerous areas, you know where you are basically let in. After all, um, you know uh, some of the best reporting of the Cuban Revolution took place when the rebels up in the Sierra Maestra Mountain welcomed reporters in and and basically just debris. Yeah, yeah, you know they they let them come in, including from the New York Times. Um, and they were given access, as it were. But, you know, these were also people who had uh, great skill and experience and understood how to 
um, you know, uh, uh, deal with the, uh, you know, uh, with what they were being told. You yeah. know, they, they didn't, they were not uh, reporters who were part of the culture of basically, um, you know, uh, you it's know, stenography, <laughs> yeah. uh, you yeah. know, where you're just given. I mean, look, in, in Cuba, Herbert Matthews, who went and interviewed Castro, I mean, Matthews was, he knew what he was doing. I mean, he, yeah. he, his, his dispatches from up in the Sierra Maestra, you know, I mean, perhaps it may be a good idea to republish them. They're just a yeah. good, um, you know, uh, a good, uh, um, you know, you can get a good, it's a master class in reporting. Yeah. So I think some of this, and not to point individual fingers, uh, comes down to a certain lack of training or experience right. among the reporters uh, when they are uh, out there um, in the field, you know, uh, collecting stories. And, uh, you know, just to give an example, um, a few years ago, uh, Robert Fisk made a very interesting statement when uh, the Iranian, um, you know, uh, uh, the nuclear issue was at its uh, hot point, red hot yeah. point. Uh, you know, he made a statement saying somebody had mentioned, you know, the Iranians, uh, they are a, uh, you know, uh, reckless kind of people. They're going to make a nuclear bomb. They'll do this, that and the other. And Fisk uh, mentioned that when he was covering the Iran-Iraq war, uh, he was at the battlefield. And when the chemical weapons were fired on the Iranian troops by the Iraqis, you know, using components developed in Germany, the United States, etc. And in the train ride back from the front, he said that the uh, Iranian troops were coughing. And what it was, was they were coughing out the chemical weapons from their lungs, you know. Mm-hmm. And so people had to run up and down the length of the train, opening the windows mm-hmm. to make sure they didn't basically re-attack uh, themselves, yeah. uh, you know, let the fresh air come in. And, you know, this was the situation. And, and at that time, Ayatollah Khomeini, um, released a fatwa saying that uh, Iran will never use weapons of mass destruction, even though they had actually experienced this attack on the battlefield. And I thought for a reporter, that was an interesting story to link with a contemporary discussion about Iran being reckless power, using weapons, etc. Yeah, uh, you know, he was able to go into his uh, memory bank and pull that story out. And yeah. I think that's the experience of a reporter that you know, you you understand. You try to contextualize and understand what's going on. You don't, I don't know just... if you have. I don't know if you have his book, but it's fifteen hundred pages long, so it's quite a memory bank that he has. Yeah, quite right. <laughs> uh, and you know, whatever one thinks of people like that, uh, they have experience and uh, they have exposure, and they understand. Uh, you know, uh, the people that they're talking to in terms of the, you know, you you learn over time uh, when you're being played. And you also have to have some sense that your own media companies have an interest and investment in what's going on. Um, You know, I mean, we've seen this in the New York Times. You know, the reporters often on the ground are quite good and they file stories and then they get frustrated that the headlines placed on the stories don't reflect what they want to say, Hmm. you know, and that even though the story may be quite balanced, the headline is grotesque. Um, so, yeah, to, to understand how to read information, even whether it's yeah. UN reports or it's press reports, it's a very big uh, problem in a time of war. 
So how do you how do you follow it? I mean, how do you 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 seem to balance the the details with maybe your political framework? Maybe that's the key is that you have a way of reading it so that you already understand the interests of the players and and what they what they might be after. Well, one thing is true, which is that mistakes will always be made. You know, n- nobody reporting a conflict is not going to make a mistake. Right. Um, you know, there will always be error. There, there must be room to see the errors. Um, also, you know, you have to talk to all kinds of people. Um, you know, uh, when I was uh, uh, reporting on something last year, I uh, contacted a person I know in the Syrian government and interviewed him uh, at length about uh, Syrian government strategy. And I wrote about it. And I wrote that this is the view of Damascus. And, you know, I got maybe over 200 emails, people saying, oh, you are a spokesperson for the Syrian government. No, actually, I'm not a spokesperson for the Syrian government. I would be a spokesperson for them if I didn't say that this comes from this person in Damascus. I was merely trying to represent their views in in order for that to be part of the conversation. You know, I also represent the views of other people, U.S. State Department officials, you know. I mean, it's a bit different... Uh, I would make the distinction like this. After the United States dropped the mother of all bombs in Afghanistan, Robert Costa of the Washington Post went to print with a story that said that the U.S. government dropped this bomb, it killed ISIS fighters, and no civilians were killed. Now, how did Robert Costa know this? Did Robert Costa verify this? Did he talk to people on the ground? No, he just accepted the press release from the Pentagon. And he never said in the story. See, it would have been fine if he had written, the Pentagon says that nobody was killed, and the Pentagon says that only ISIS... You know, if he had put it like that, then it's okay. Then he's reporting what the Pentagon is saying. He's not reporting what is real. And they do know how to do that. For example, if you read a report on the Venezuelan government today or what's going on in Venezuela, and they quote extensively the opposition figures, and then at the end they say, uh, however, Venezuelan government spokesman says that the opposition has actually killed a bunch of people in the past few days, and then the story's over. So they do know how to how to differentiate their the views and what they're reporting is the truth from a quote from somebody. They just don't do it across the board. Yeah, quite right. I mean, and so so that's one way to do it. The other way to do it is where you talk to somebody and say, well, look, this is the view from Damascus. This is interesting for us. We should uh, pay attention to this. And by the way, this is the view from Istanbul. This is what the armed opposition leadership is saying. You know, if you're writing regularly on a conflict, uh, it's useful to represent the views of different parts of the conflict in order, as a, as a reporter, to understand what the terrain looks like. You know, uh, one doesn't just write about a conflict without talking to people. You know, and, and I see that happening a great deal on social media, is that people who don't make an effort uh, to reach out and talk to people have opinions. Yes. You yeah, know, well, it's not a not debate. Important. Yeah, I, I've I've had this feeling, especially about Syria, which is there's there's not really a debate happening. There's a lot of performances. There's a lot of people making statements. But the idea that you can make a statement that I listen to, I respond to it. You listen to my response. You respond to my response. 
as opposed to you making a statement and me saying, ah, that makes you a horrible, you know, person that I oppose everything you stand for and I never want to hear from you again and I'm going to block you or whatever it is. Uh, that seems to be, it seems, social media seems to be very conducive to that kind of um, dialogue or discussion and not to a, a more profound debate where people can change each other's minds or at least probe each other's minds. Well, a lot of this is overdetermined by politics. You know, uh, mm. it's not really even about uh, you know social media. I mean, this is this was there even in the age before social media. Certain political uh, groups or certain political perspectives basically said, uh, you know, this is what we believe. Uh, you know, uh, there are significant political groups, say, in the United States, that believe that the main author of this crisis is the Assad government and they are unwilling to contextualize it further and therefore uh, if the conflict must end Assad must go which you know replicates the state department position and you know that's not a problem i mean uh, yeah, at some point they can be you know, right sometimes yeah, sure exactly so that's itself is not the problem the problem is in the assessment the assessment that uh, he is the sole author of the crisis you know that seems to me rather narrow and so if you have that opinion then uh, there is no way to have a conversation really because you close the door uh, to any kind of discussion um, you know m m much the same would be if you're talking to somebody who's looking at it with a very sectarian line you know who's saying oh Iran is trying to dominate the region uh, and they need to be taught a lesson or something like that yeah, uh, or Russia, I, or Russia exactly. these, these kind of positions uh, they narrow a conversation and I find those exhausting and yeah. not uh, very productive. Well, yeah, uh, and you have you. Uh, you know, I, I also think you stand out <laughs> for not getting into that as much as a lot of people on either side. I mean, you just I I, I, I respect that about you that you just you just kind of try to keep doing the work instead of instead of getting into polemics too often. Well, I like the people in the region. You know, honestly, I like uh, my Syrian friends. I like my friends in Libya. I mean. I, I like and respect the people. So I don't really care what debates are happening in the West about these countries, except in insofar as they impact them. So, for instance, the one debate that does bother me is the debate that says, well, you know, the West has to do something to stop the carnage. And the reason that that phrase worries me is that the West has made it a habit when they say we have to do something. Well, the do always means bomb from the sky. Yeah. And I remember, again, a lecture that you gave, I probably in 2011, about Libya, where you were talking about the way Rwanda is constantly brought up as this uh, tale, like, if we don't do something in Libya, it'll end up like Rwanda. And you, you said, I, I'd like everybody in the audience to think about who we could have bombed to stop the Rwandan genocide. Yeah, exactly. I mean, what were the targets? Um, and, and it's much the same now. You know, what are the targets? You know, what are you going to obliterate? Um, has the has the crisis in Libya abated? Um, you know, has the harm uh, that could have happened without the bombing, uh, you know, been ameliorated in some way? I mean, so you, yeah, I, I, you're a perfect perfect person to ask this because I've seen Libya referred to as a success story. Like, there's many many fewer refugees from Libya as there are from Syria. And that's because we went and got rid of Gaddafi. And I wonder, you know, how you'd react to that. 
I mean, depends how you define success. You know, if success is that the West is an inconvenience, um, then yeah, I mean, of course, uh, um, you know, Libya is not uh, inconveniencing the West as much as Syria. In other words, Libyan refugees are not flooding in. But let's uh, stop and think about this demographically. You know, there are about 25 million or so Syrians. Uh, the population of Libya is about 6 million. Uh, it's a much smaller country. And the war is very brutal uh, in, in Libya. Uh, but uh, the population is not being able to leave. Where would they go? I mean, uh, would they risk crossing the Mediterranean? Uh, not in large numbers. Uh, what you're seeing instead is people basically uh, going to ground. Uh, hiding in their houses, minimizing, uh, you know, uh, movement. Um, yeah, in Libya, like you said, if you look at it geographically, it's a very, very big, very big country with a, with a smaller population. Yeah, um, I mean, the density of population in Libya is minimal. Uh, you know, I mean, to say that is also, in a way, wrong because a lo large part of Libya is yeah, also not easily to inhabit. Uh, yeah. But, you know... Uh, you know, if you just t take uh, it in, kil in square kilometers, uh, I once looked at this and I was quite surprised. E you know, every square kilometer uh, in Libya has about uh, just under four people, maybe three and a half wow. people. You wow. know, uh, and you know, you if you uh, consider uh, that in a country like uh, Canada, that's probably about the same. Uh, you know, Canada probably has a population density of about three and a half uh, per square kilometer. And the reason is because Canada includes the vast areas of the north uh, that are not so easily inhabitable, just as Libya in, in, includes the Sahara, which is not so easily inhabitable. You know, uh, so, yeah, it's a very sparsely populated area, of course, but it's also a small population. So there have been um, Libyan... Uh, you know, uh, refugees, uh, but not uh, very many of them. Uh, the density of population in Syria is uh, about 120 per square kilometer, uh, much more densely populated country. So when there's a war in a place like Syria, you will see people leave. I mean, look, firstly, as I said, I think it's a very bad standard to measure success or failure uh, based on uh, whether the West is inconvenienced, but also one should look below that and look at population density to better understand why people flee. If there are only four people per square kilometer, then yeah. the war may not come to you. If there are 120 people per square kilometer, the war is coming to you. I mean, I can't help but think of Gaza with th thousands of people per square kilometer, right? Again, so that's another one of the most densely populated parts of the world. I mean, it's it's not exactly thousands. It's about a little less than a thousand per square kilometer right. in Gaza. Uh, but compare that to you know three and a half people. Uh, yeah, exactly. <laughs> I mean, it's not and a comparable. I mean, yeah. So so maybe we can step back to as we move towards the end and just say like one of the one of the things about death of a nation, like I said before, and and really all your work is this kind of big picture, and. Uh, and I, I just wanted to kind of reflect on, you know, I, we mentioned this at the very beginning, like what the hell hit us in terms of what the Syrian people must be feeling. But I, I was just thinking about how long we've been, you know, we've known each other and we've been writing about these things. And it's like the late 90s to now, 
I remember calling you after 9-11. You probably don't remember this because, you know, you're probably fielding a lot of calls. But I was like, Vijay, what the hell do we do? What the hell's going on? And, uh, and it's like so many of the things that are going on right now would have been, I just, I couldn't have imagined them then. You know, ISIS and, Al, you know, like Al-Qaeda owning territory in Syria and, yeah, the collapse of Libya. I don't know, what, 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 how do you how do you how do you think about the past twenty years or? Well, longer than that, but uh, let's, yeah, stay past, than me, yeah. let's stay no, with the past. Let's stay with the past. Let's stay with the past twenty years. That's a yeah. good period, okay? Yeah. As you well know, uh, your guru and mine, Noam Chomsky, <laughs> likes yeah. to give that talk of his, right? Uh, yeah. The same title, the current, the current crisis, crisis in the Middle East. Exactly. He has yeah. done this for about thirty years, much longer than twenty years. Uh, but it's a very unfair joke in a way because it suggests a kind of fatality uh, with the region of the Middle East. And in a sense, you know, the, the piece that uh, I, I, was, I was anticipating, but of course nobody could have predicted, was the uprisings of 2011. Yes. Um, that was truly an important episode. And I, I, I am quite surprised when people suggest that that was not real. You know, that people yes, somehow, yes. you know, uh, you know, by the way, every so-called color revolution is also real. Uh, yeah. The question is, which class is on the street? Yeah. Uh, not that people are falsely on the street, you know, uh, yeah. people are on the street, they're on the street. Now, what class is on the street? Which class is dominating this? Uh, you know, there are currently people on the street in Venezuela. They happen to be mainly the middle class, uh, but they are upset and they are upset for their class reasons. One has to understand that. One can't say, well, this is engineered by the United States. No, it's not engineered. The United States will play a role there, but also this class is aggrieved. And, you know, uh, any kind of uh, government has to deal with that. So, anyway, the, uh, uh, you know, two events of 2011, I mean, who would have thought, uh, Justin, that in Bahrain, there would be mass demonstrations against the government? I mean, it's unbelievable. Bahrain is a police state. Uh, and, to, and a small, tiny police state, which is not that wealthy at all, a kind of subsidiary of Saudi Arabia. Yeah. Who would have imagined that there would be even protests inside Saudi Arabia, which the government had to tackle by paying people, every uh, citizen, sending them a check, and then uh, very hastily and silently assassinating everybody who tried to hold Facebook pages you know, for days of rage. Uh, there was a kind of very slow uh, killing of these activists in Saudi Arabia. So who would have even imagined that? You know, uh, it's something to hold on to. Uh, so I don't, I don't, uh, you know, uh, ride with the people that make the argument that well, you know, Arab Spring leads led to this disaster. I think that's a very unfair assessment of, of the, that uprising. The uprising happened. Uh, perhaps there was inadequate. Uh, you know, uh, public backing, perhaps the forces arrayed against the people were too great, whatever it might be, and I go over this in the book, whatever yeah. it might be, the fact is that people did rise up, and that was something I think uh, yeah, and I do, take you pride know, in. I would like you, maybe it, it is important, the, the only place I read about this is in your book, where you contrasted how the Arab Spring played out in Tunisia compared to other places and the the reason that you think it played out differently was precisely because they had a 
particularly strong union movement there. Yeah, so, uh, you know, look, it's it, most Arab countries have some sort of trade union uh, movement. But uh, Tunisia was lucky in a way. It was uh, it's a, also a smaller country. But the, even the official trade union uh, was able to maintain uh, its position of quite, uh, uh, you know, uh, close ties with the workers. You know, uh, in 1935 in Moscow, the Italian trade union, uh, Italian communist leader, Palmiro Togliatti, gave a series of lectures at the Lenin School where he talked about fascist trade unions and he said, you know, the fascists can create all kinds of institutions, cultural institutions, etc. But in the trade union, there will be working class contradictions that they will not be able to smother. That means in those fascist trade unions, workers will yet come in and say, my wages are low, working conditions are bad, you know, they will find it hard to smother the class contradictions in those unions. And in a way, uh, that's, that insight is important to understand the unions, say, in Tunisia, where even though they were establishment unions, you know, uh, government-run unions, whatever, they yet had workers in them. And the workers fought inside the union for workers' democracy. And they had a space for workers to interact, you know. You can't control uh, these working-class institutions. It's very difficult. And so these unions... Uh, when the uh, in the 1990s and 2000s, when the economic crisis struck North Africa quite hard and produced uh, unemployment among college-educated, uh, you know, young people, um, the unions played a role because the unions came in and helped create, you know, unions for unemployed uh, college students, things like that. They were quite clever, but. Uh, they also incubated the old uh, socialistic and left-wing political parties. That's important, you know. The organizers of those parties went into the union movement because it was legal. They used, as it were, every legal opportunity to assert themselves. So when the uprising began in Tunisia, these unions came out and played a very important role. Uh, and so did, you know, the, the uh, left-wing forces uh, that then very quickly established, uh, you know, uh, political parties. And, uh, you know, uh, in, in that situation, um, I mean, this was not possible uh, so easily uh, in um, uh, Egypt, where they also have a, had a, 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 a trade union movement. And so in Tunisia, uh, the... Um, Democratic Patriots movement, various political parties that emerged after 2011, you know, they had these union leaders, like one of them, Shokri Beled, uh, was, became very popular, became a very important part of the movement. And they put uh, on the table uh, the question of, um, you know, uh, wide democracy in Tunisia. And, you know, even though Beled was assassinated in 2013, uh, that movement continued and it was not able to be uh, easily brought down. So um, in Tunisia, uh, they were able to strengthen some of the institutions and not destroy them. And that's why, of course, they win uh, the Nobel Prize. Well, Vijay, there's so many more things we could talk about. You know, I, I actually have notes where I wanted to ask you about Turkey more and Yemen and, and uh, you know, even even 
other parts of the global south, but maybe we can do that in future episodes. Thank you very much. Okay.